Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. In the United States today, a lot of the focus will be on marking the date. It was one year ago today that we watched as hundreds and hundreds of rioters swarmed the U.S. Capitol during an insurrection that has deeply impacted politics in that country. So what will be happening to mark that? Joining us now, Reggie Cicchini, our Global Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what is going to be happening? So the day is going to start with a speech from President Biden, who is about to ask the nation what kind of country it wants to be. And he's expected to take a veiled swipe at former President Donald Trump uh, by pushing back on the repeated election lies that the former president uh, and the former president's allies have really been talking uh, over and over for uh, the last year. Uh, and this is going to kickstart uh, a day of uh, marking what was uh, an attack and an assault on American democracy, which will end tonight with a vigil on the steps of the U.S. Capitol led by uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And so is this mainly which political party is going to be dealing with all this? Because as we know, this has really resulted in even more polarization, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, it's, it's worth pointing out that Congress isn't sitting right now. So there are some uh, lawmakers that are not going to be in town for various reasons. But this is going to be a strong Democratic push uh, and a strongly Democratic led event uh, today. Uh, and you're right. Partisan politics is really playing uh, a kind of a role and has been playing a role for the last year. Democrats uh, are the ones saying, look, this was an assault on the Constitution. This was an assault on the uh, that kind of Democratic right that people have in the United United States to be able to cast a ballot. Republicans, on the other hand, are simply ignoring the event. This is not something that they want to focus on. They try to avoid talking about the insurrection as it was and simply try to attack the process of investigating it, mostly because they can find themselves in the crosshairs of the former president, who still wields an incredible amount of control over the party, and finding themselves in an unfavorable position with the former president could potentially impact their political futures. That is why you are seeing such a strong partisan divide in how today is being remembered. Right. It wasn't like that at the time, though, was it, Reggie? It felt like in the day or two after January 6th of 2021 that things might be different. Well, and that's true. There were uh, members of the Republican Party who stood up to say what happened on January 6th was inappropriate, was something that should never happen again. Someone like uh, Republican Lindsey Graham, who in the days afterwards and the months afterwards, and even into the final few hours uh, leading up to today's memorial, have really been standing by Donald Trump, maybe not to talk about the negative side of January 6th, but to kind of repeat ad nauseum those uh, comments from the former president about election fraud and election integrity. This really has kind of bolstered how the Republican Party intends to move itself forward, even if Donald Trump is not at the top. They simply want to kind of uh, perpetuate that message that their base has been kind of swimming in for the last year, that elections are not safe unless Republicans are in control. Okay, and so there's been ongoing hearings about this, too, right? Like this is still being investigated. 
this is being investigated uh, kind of in a parallel way. You have the committee that is investigating this inside Capitol Hill, where they have uh, uh, information linked to text messages sent by uh, Fox News host Sean Hannity to talk about the potential or that at least imply the potential for uh, uh, an, uh, an attempt to try to you know stop the certification of Joe Biden's uh, uh, victory. Uh, they have information and timestamps of what the president was doing at the time of the uh, of the event. Uh, but we also have a federal investigation taking place with the FBI. It's the largest in FBI history. The attorney general was out uh, yesterday talking about how this is not going to be an investigation where an agenda is attached to it, but they are going to follow the evidence. More than 700 people have already been uh, charged. There have been 160 people who have pled guilty. Some people are showing remorse. Other people aren't. But there are still hundreds of people that the FBI say they're still looking for. Okay, so the, all of that is kind of ongoing. Has there been any polling done, Reggie, about how the general public is feeling on that day? So, look, the polling uh, kind of varies as to which agency is doing the polling uh, and also who they are talking to. But the majority of Americans feel that what happened on January 6th was something that should not ever happen again. But it's worth pointing out that there was polling that took place over the last week or so that also showed that there were about one in three Americans who felt that there should be some kind of violence against the government if they feel that the government has done something wrong. So there is a kind of wide uh, uh, understanding or misunderstanding about what actually took place on January 6th. But for the majority of the country, they did not like what they saw take place on January 6th. But again, you have to break that down by party. You will find more Democrats who say that. You will find fewer Republicans who feel that. All right. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Reggie. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. What's happening where you are with the weather this morning? We've got a lot of snow ice-covered roads, snow-covered roads, and now freezing rain coming down in some areas. Simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line and give us an update, 604-331-2899. Got an email from Greg who said, sent me a picture, thank you, who said, this is my complex in on the north side of Port Coquitlam. The freezing rain has started here, he said. The roads in this area aren't plowed at all. And then he said, my phone screen is freezing up from the rain while typing this email. <laughs> you can clearly tell it is heavy snow with very shiny like a layer on top of it, which is that kind of crusty freezing rain ice that is falling right now. So what is happening where you are? It's very challenging out there on the roads this morning, as you can imagine. So lots of authorities, everybody essentially saying, if you don't have to be on the roads, please don't. Abbotsford Police Department putting out that message as well, because you know, uh, it's going to be messy out there. Think about emergency services as well. How are they responding? Joining us now is Troy Clifford, Provincial President of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC and an active paramedic. Good morning, Troy. Hello, Troy. Good morning. Ah, there you are. Yes. Hi. Good morning. Uh, listen, what's it like for emergency responders when the weather becomes like this? How much more challenging does that make things? You know, it's always a challenge for our, our paramedics and other responders and essential services have to be out in these conditions um, to you know, to respond. I mean, we, we have to navigate uh, in, the, in the conditions uh, under emergency response conditions. Um, you know, lights and sirens don't get you anywhere when uh, conditions are there. You have to still drive and uh, navigate through these challenges. So... Um, when when we when we're enhanced with uh, icy conditions or adverse conditions, um, it makes it even more difficult to get around and get to our patients. So obviously, um, in their time of need, so 
um, we're already challenged and then you know add this on top and uh, you know you know that's why we we uh, encourage everybody to follow the the you know the recommendation to stay home if you can uh, less people on the roads make it easier for us to get to our patients for sure yeah so given since the snow started I guess it's almost two weeks ago now when the first snowfall happened yeah. uh, how has that impacted ambulance times do you think like is it more of a delay are people waiting longer for help yeah, the conditions definitely, uh, when we had adverse weather conditions like the snow, and, and I mean, we're used to uh, extreme conditions around the province. Um, it's less so in the lower mainland because uh, people are not used to these type of things. But around the province, obviously, um, we're, we're, we're prepared and, and more people are, are better prepared. They all generally have uh, proper tires and, and uh, equipment and safety and prepared. And, and, and so uh, in the lower mainland, we see the volume more so in this time. So it's definitely a harder for us, and then you know, and people, uh, you know, aren't aren't uh, aren't as uh, used to it. So that when we see these uh, spikes that we see, and this long one's been prolonged, obviously, so it definitely delays us getting to our calls because um, you know we can't you know race through the streets, lights and siren. That just doesn't yeah. happen. So given what we see happening this morning here, Troy, too, where it's not just snow, we're talking about freezing rain in a lot of areas. What is the message that you would like to put out there to people? Yeah, so, you know, when you talk about the freezing rain and that, that's the risk when the conditions aren't plowed or or not able to be moved as quick. And then you start seeing the freezing rain. That's where people, even if they're walking or out and about trying to get some air or trying to shovel, uh, that's where we're seeing the more, uh, you know, conditioned stuff. Uh, people are falling and slipping, and we really want to make sure if you have the ability to have salt, clear your sidewalks, um, do those sorts of things. But be just extra careful because, uh, you know, every extra call puts more pressure on the system um, and obviously injures people. So really it's just like being extra safe if you don't have to go out. A little bit like we've seen in the heat dome, and when we see these extreme uh, spikes, and whether it's hot or cold, or whatnot. Look, check in on your, your neighbors. Make sure that people have proper heating and and uh, and food and uh, and those sorts of things. So that uh, and your loved ones, right? right? So those are all the usual precautions, but uh, extra diligence. Okay, so Troy, would you say when the weather is like this, do you get more calls? Oh, absolutely. You know, we're already in speak uh, in, in heavy spikes of calls, but we do get more calls related to, obviously, car accidents. Uh, generally, in the lower mainland, they're not high-speed impacts, so we're not seeing the serious motor vehicle accidents, but they're still happening, for sure, around the province. Um, we see more uh, recreational things. People are out trying to skate and do uh, tobogganing and all those sorts of things that come with those type of injuries uh, or, or those type of events, but also the slipping and falling and, and those sorts of things. So all those... Uh, um, those type of calls are, mm-hmm. are, but also people are shut in more, and we're obviously seeing lots more Omicron calls that are relating to people's, uh, you know, conditions from that. So it's all adding extra workload that's uh, putting extreme pressure on an already uh, tax system with our out of service numbers and those sorts of things. Right. All right, Troy. Listen, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
check with your local school district, but lots of them are closed today. I know that a lot of people were doing this from home anyway, but some schools were open for the children of essential workers. Uh, for instance, I got an email from Liz. Thank you very much, Liz. Says, I'm grateful the Vancouver School Board made the wise decision, she said, to call it a snow day. She said, on top of the snow, there's no power at my school at 25th and Granville. She said, yesterday was stressful enough at work, even with a few kids, as many of my colleagues had COVID experiences in the holidays, so everyone was extra cautious. How will we feel next week with all the kids in the building, she said. So yeah, I imagine that's something a lot of teachers are asking themselves. So to find out more about what's going on out there, joining us now, Jatinder Burr, who's acting president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Jatinder, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, City. What is the situation in Surrey this morning? Is that also a, a school closure day? Yes, indeed it is. Okay, so good for people to know that. So all schools in Surrey, if you were taking your child, they are closed today. But what has the situation been like even before this snow detender? How is the COVID situation? So we have had uh, this week to plan for um, a moment's notice to flip on to online instruction so that we're planning for functional closures if and when need be. And what are you hearing about that? Like, are there a lot of teachers who are, well, sick right now? Um, so I haven't actually heard of, um, you know, if, if folks are sick out there. What I have been hearing from our members is that, you know, there's a mishmash of feelings. And, you know, some are um, very nervous about going back to school uh, with Omicron. And some are really looking forward to seeing their students again. So many staff are unsure still have questions around, you know, what it's going to look like once we actually hit the ground uh, with all students uh, the following Monday. Right. So what would the Surrey Teachers Association like to hear or see right now? Well, we we would actually like to see that, uh, you know, we want to see Omicron controlled. To be honest, everybody wants to see Omicron controlled. And so what does that look like in schools? Well, what that looks like is that if kids are sick and adults are sick, they're staying home. Uh, That looks like proper ventilation, proper air filtration. Uh, That looks like um, really enhanced safety measures, which includes more of enforcement in mask wearing, Uh, includes uh, space, right? Our classrooms are already full. And so creating space in this kind of a closed environment where the weather is very cold outside is difficult to do. So, you know, I think that uh, folks are anxious. Folks are anxious. And now we're preparing for the functional closures. Are there adequate preparations, do you think, for a lot of teachers calling in sick? You know, this is going to be a wait and see, Sunny. I really, really think as much as you can, you know, we're, we're preparing for it. The reality is that we're not going to know until next week when more kids enter the school system how if adults are sick um, then and we've got lots of students coming in, you know, we won't be able to uh, sustain the school site system uh, without proper supervision. And so um, if we're planning sort of day to day, week to week, uh, that's all we can do. And we are preparing, uh, members are preparing to the best of their ability with their lesson plans, they're sharing their lesson plans, they're sharing resources, they're collaborating. Um, but it's still, it's still nervous uh, in the sense that, um, you know, people don't want to get sick. Uh, some of our members don't have boosters uh, in their arms still. Um, our kids from K to grade six 
I think it was 33 percent are immunized with one shot. So there's still work to be done. Uh, you know, it would be really great to me to have um, access points within our school hubs for vaccines for families in Surrey, uh, for kids to get it and for their parents to get it. So, I mean, idealistic, wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah, idealistically. What is your advice then, uh, Jatinder, to parents uh, as, as they worry about next week? What, what should parents, do you think, be doing? I think parents, I think the most important thing is, you know, watch your child, um, speak with your kids. And like, if your child is not feeling well, please keep them home, right? Um, and then if, if you have any questions, I think um, communicating with the school team is really important. Um, if our kids are anxious or they need additional supports, counselors, uh, let's seek support from our counselors and our external outside agencies for mental health. The problem also is that we don't have counselors in every single school. So um, our system needs more support in that way. All right. Well, Jatinda, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your time. This is Mornings with Simi. Let us know what's happening out there. There's a, it's a very busy situation in traffic. If you don't have to go out today, please don't. Uh, drop us a line, though. You can call us on our buzz line, 604-331-2899, or email me, simi at cknw.com. Now, earlier this morning with Vaughn Palmer, we were talking about, you know, the NDP government's record when it comes to dealing with the housing affordability issue. When they were in opposition, they hit the BC Liberal government hard on this back in 2015, 2016, contributed a lot to that change in power that we had in 2017. But here we are, 2022, and the same problem continues uh, to plague us. In fact, it's as bad as it has ever been. There's a new study out about this, and we're going to talk about it right now with Dr. Paul Kershaw, who's a UBC professor and founder of Generation Squeeze. Dr. Kershaw, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. Tell me about this study. Well, just as you described, the problem of runaway housing prices continues to plague our region, our province, and the country. And so we put out the latest study where we're trying to signal that Canada, both politically and culturally, has become addicted to high and rising home prices. And it's time to break that addiction. And so we're saying just as governments have introduced a price on pollution to lower our emissions and tackle climate change, now is the time to put a modest price on housing inequity to apply a downward pressure on the skyrocketing housing prices that have landed us in this unaffordability crisis. And we recommend starting by adding a small surtax, less than 1%, and only on the value of homes over a million dollars, only on the value of homes above a million. Now, that's going to be a range of people listening to you today, and I know I'm going to get angry emails and people are going to be pissed off. But it's time to recognize that if you're in a million-dollar-plus home, you're amongst the 10% of Canadians living in the most affluent households across this country. Sure, it's not a mansion in our region, but it's still a relative amount of affluence. And I guess we're saying it's time for that group. And I'm in this. My home just went up half a million bucks over the last year, according to BC assessment. And I think people like me need to demonstrate allegiance to that Canadian dream that a good home should be in reach for what hard work can earn. I was thinking about that as you were saying that, because I thought, well, a million over a million dollars in Metro Vancouver, I'm not sure anybody would really consider that to be luxurious because there's, you know, people living in condos that are worth more than a million dollars and they're living in, you know, two, maybe, maybe two bedrooms, maybe eight or 900 square feet. 
Yeah. So, you know, right now I'm in a bit of a competition for people's hearts and minds to reconsider what does affluence look like in Canada these days. And partly I'm saying this is the hardest region to sell it. And I know that I'm not naive about that, but I'm saying look, if you live in, in Metro Vancouver, anywhere in BC, and you're in a million dollar plus home and say you're making 60, 70,000, that's a fundamentally different circumstance than someone making 60 or 70,000 and a renter. And it's certainly a lot more than somebody who's struggling to find any kind of rental at all and you know, going to social housing, which is then out competing to people who would have used that and now are homeless. And so affluence is really being turned on by the degree to which you are a homeowner. So much so that the finance critic federally, uh, Mr. Polyev, yesterday said that home ownership and the rising housing price inflation is creating an, an aristocracy. And I think he's right. And so we need to be thinking about how do we address uh, this problem and try to achieve two simultaneous goals. Let's slow down those home prices. Uh, and let's also ask those who are doing a bit better than others to contribute to building more affordable housing and a range of other things, the child care, the elder care that the pandemic has shown we badly need. Right. When you say, though, uh, a small surtax above a million dollars, what does that small surtax actually look like? Yeah. So if you're in a $1.2 million home, we're talking about an extra $400 a year, and you wouldn't even need to pay it until you sell your home. You'd accrue it each year, but you wouldn't have to pay it. So if you're house rich but cash constrained, we're planning on that. And effectively, we're just talking about adding a bit of progressivity to the municipal property taxes that we're already used to paying. And this is an important idea. I guess if it went up to if you were a $2 million home, it could be getting to uh, you know, more like $4,000. So now we're talking about the category that I'm in. But look, if you're a middle earner and you make uh, $60,000, we're going to tax your income about ten grand easily a year. But if you live in a million dollar or let's say a two million dollar home in Vancouver, which puts you in the top two percent of affluent homeowners in this country, you're paying about six grand in property taxes. So the top two percent in terms of housing wealth pays very little relative to the median earner. And I guess just as offshore tax shelters motivate us to move money out of Canada to preserve assets, and we think that's a bit of a betrayal, the domestic home ownership tax shelter motivates all of us to bank on rising home prices to gain wealth. Right. But just a question here, you were saying like, you know, small $400, but if it's so small, then how could it have any kind of an impact on housing affordability and allow people to move into a home? Well, first off, um, I mean, it must have some impact because the amount of angry emails and phone calls I get signals people like, that's outrageous. And so if you're critiquing me and saying it's not bold enough, it's not a big enough signal, that's a critique I'm willing to hear. Um, But I guess we're in the game sort of psychologically to say, Canadians, we need to get off the fence. Do we want housing to be a place to call home or a good investment strategy? If you want the good the place to call home, then we can't want home prices to rise any longer. And we need to start having our policies unanimously signal that. And so saying we don't we're going to discourage home prices as they rise above a million bucks. That's the signal this is sending. Maybe it's not a strong enough signal. Time would tell. Right. I guess, I, you know, it's just that we've heard this before, Dr. Kershaw. I remember talking to even to you, you know, five or six years ago. We brought in all sorts of different measures. There is the surtax here in Vancouver. There's the foreign buyer's tax. You name it. Perfect, nothing yeah. nothing seems question. to have worked, right? So, but that's because we've tended to say the problem is others. So the surtaxes, the foreign buyer's taxes, I should say, you know, on others outside of the country. Um, you've got, you know, trying to deal with money laundry. That's sort of over there, some shady real estate activities. 
Um, you know, we, we're frustrated with NIMBYs. We sometimes villainize, you know, mean-spirited developers, even though they're building so much of the supply we need. But what we haven't done is looked in the mirror and say, to what degree am I entangled in a system that fuels home prices leaving behind our earnings? And so this policy signal, rather than when the B.C. government, you know, praises itself, less than 1% of B.C. residents are going to pay the speculation tax. Okay, clearly, it's not a big enough signal. This would go after 10% of Canadians to contribute more, and it would be about 20% of British Columbians. That is a much bigger signal than we have ever sent. And I think the time is now because we're seeing home prices continue to skyrocket amid a pandemic-induced, very tough economy. Yeah, it certainly is the case. All right, well, thank you so much for this great discussion. Thanks for your time. Thanks, and please have your listeners bring on the angry emails and phone calls, etc. We're ready. We're braced for it. Okay, that's good to know. That's Dr. Paul Kershaw, UBC professor and founder of Generation Squeeze, talking about their new study out that actually recommends a price on housing inequity to help, well, essentially stall home prices.